are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, September 23, 2021. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the BBC headlines, the California Report documents how years of careful preparation helped some areas around South Lake Tahoe escape property destruction during the still-burning Caldor Fire. In regional news and weather, it's the story of the emu that went AWOL for more than six weeks after the river fire. Then it's time for Brave Hearts and an essay by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Governor Gavin Newsom has signed AB 701. It's a bill that requires warehouse operators to disclose more about the quotas and algorithms they use to squeeze more productivity out of workers, possibly creating more dangerous workplaces. With more, here's KQED's Rachel Myro. In his signing statement, the governor wrote, We cannot allow corporations to put profit over people. The bill by Assemblymember and union ally Lorena Gonzalez of San Diego is widely seen as targeting Amazon, an industry leader in using data and quotas to track work rates, sometimes to the extent that employees forego state-mandated rest periods and push themselves to the point of injury. AB 701 prohibits production quotas that drive workers to injury and establishes stronger enforcement mechanisms to protect workers from retaliation if they seek redress. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. As for Amazon, a company that, according to some studies, has a worker injury rate nearly twice that of the rest of the warehouse industry, no comment yet. But the California Retailers Association says the legislation will lead to higher prices for a variety of consumer goods. The law takes effect on January 1st. And staying on legislation, Governor Newsom signed two other bills yesterday that aimed to counter Texas's recently enacted law restricting abortion rights. Newsom said a challenge to Roe v. Wade from Mississippi is expected to come before the U.S. Supreme Court later this year, making the fight for reproductive rights critical right now. So it becomes of outsized importance that California assert itself, take nothing for granted. Good enough never is. We've got to continue to step up our efforts to do, dare I say, just the opposite of these states, states like Texas. One of the California bills signed by Newsom increases protection for health providers and patients and prohibits actions like taking pictures of people visiting healthcare centers and posting them online. Another updates patient privacy laws so that information on health services is shared only with a patient and not with family members or guardians. A coalition of groups supporting reproductive rights also launched Wednesday. It's called the California Future of Abortion Council. Let's turn now to how one place in California survived a disaster. The Caldor Fire destroyed more than a thousand buildings and continues to burn. But communities around South Lake Tahoe mostly escaped the blaze's destruction, despite lying square in its path. As KQED's Danielle Venton tells us, that's thanks to the hard work and valor of firefighters, but also years of work preparing the forest. Standing on the side of the road winding down from Echo Summit, the effects of the fire are clear. Across the valley, very black. You can see some high severity fire, you know, where you literally just have sticks standing, you know, matchsticks. Amanda Montai is a former firefighter and spokesperson on the Caldor Fire. She points out it's not all matchsticks. We can see where the fire calmed down and stopped, right when it hit areas that foresters had prepared for fire. You know, you have black on one side, you have this, the valley is green. 
you have tons of houses that are visible. Um, so this thing, I mean, it really was cranking when it came into this area and um, it's, it's clear from this viewpoint just how effective those treatments were. Underneath all that green forest are neighborhoods with thousands of cabins and homes. To get a closer look, I joined Phil Heitzke with the Forest Service down near the Myers Christmas Valley section of South Lake Tahoe, one of the areas where flames came closest to homes. We're looking at a dozer line, bare earth scraped with a bulldozer, that lies just up against a row of houses. It was the first line of defense laid when firefighters were expecting they'd have to make a desperate stand to save the homes. They were pushing this dozer line, and then they realized, oh wait, the fire behavior's dropping down as soon as it hit this unit, and they're able to go up there and go direct with it. That means it was safe to get close to the flames. That wouldn't have been possible if crews and equipment hadn't thinned small trees and brush here a few years ago. You can see sunlight through the trees, the canopy, um, very well open. That's the key thing with these fires is having that open canopy so it can't sustain a crown run. It all drops down to the ground. That's what happened here when the Caldor fire hit. We were getting about 100 to 150 foot flame links off of that. Once it hit this unit, it dropped down to about 20-foot flame links. That meant firefighters could corral the fire and steer it away from the community. How much credit do you give to this fuel treatment for saving, say, those homes? I give a lot of credit to it. Um, For the folks who have been working on these projects for the last two decades, uh, my hat's off to them. Tens of thousands of acres have been treated in the Lake Tahoe Basin in the last 15 years, more than is typical for forested mountain communities. The work is not cheap. Paying crews with chainsaws to thin, overgrown forests can cost around $2,000 an acre. Comparing that against the value of homes saved, it looks like a good investment. But here, Lake Tahoe is fortunate. Highly populated with a wealthy conservation community and lots of political pull, it's good at winning competitive grants to pay for this work. You know, there's a political pressure there. Just the amount of folks that do live around the Lake Tahoe Basin and for how famous the Lake Tahoe Basin is. Heidsky says the 2007 Angora fire in the basin was a big wake-up call. More than 240 homes burned in that fire, and it made the community realize they had to prepare. It was a game-changer for getting policies changed so we could do more fuels management. It was kind of the forefront to creating all of this, um, all these units getting treated. Bob Larson is a homeowner who lives nearby. On a recent morning, we went for a stroll, and he recalls how the Angora fire galvanized the community. It really highlighted the importance of doing something about the overstock forest and trying to make sure that homeowners are doing the work that they need to do to uh, provide that defensible space. Larson's home is just about a block away from where the Caldor fire stopped. He credits the areas of treated forest with saving his and his neighbors' homes. So the fact that we had this buffer between sort of the the very hot fire and and fire that was more manageable, I think, is is a big part of of why they were able to succeed and why we are so lucky. Larson and Heitzke know their community was lucky, but part of that luck was being well prepared. They hope lessons from the Caldor fire can be used to protect mountain communities around the state. For The California Report, I'm Danielle Venton in South Lake Tahoe. Support for the California Report comes from Blue Shield of California, rebuilding the future of healthcare with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt. 
whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And that is the California Report for Thursday, September 23rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. When Rainy James and her two-year-old son evacuated from their Chicago Park home in a panic on August 4th as the river fire approached, she didn't have time to load the family's pet emu, Stevie, into a trailer. Emus, by the way, are related to ostriches and are the second tallest bird native to Australia. It was painful for the family to leave without two-year-old Stevie. After all, they had hatched it from an egg. But with help from a local lost animal tracker, scores of Facebook users, and a team of mountain bikers, on Saturday, Stevie was reunited with the family more than six weeks after the fire. Rainey and her husband, Trevor Juvenal, lost their home in the River Fire, and seven weeks later, the trauma is still fresh. They eventually were allowed back to see what remained of their property, but no sign of Stevie. Instead, Rainey ran into Katie Lutz, who has a Facebook group called River Fire Lost and Found Pets and Livestock. Teaming up, Katie and Rainey posted about Stevie on Facebook, and Rainey started scouring social media. After getting a tip that Stevie might be in El Dorado County, Rainey says she joined every lost animal group in that county. Last Friday, videos of Stevie started popping up, confirming the emu was likely to be alive. Saturday, Rainey and Katie went to the area of one Stevie sighting. They ran into a group of trail bikers who confirmed that, yes, a six-foot-tall, feathered, yet flightless bird had indeed been seen in the vicinity. Rainey gave them a pillowcase and rope, and aided by their speedy wheels, the bikers rounded up Stevie and brought him in. But here's the crazy part. Stevie was found on a trail near the town of Pilot Hill, more than 30 miles from Chicago Park. Since Stevie isn't saying, we can only guess at the details of this improbable journey. Stevie is now safe on a friend's property, and Rainey and Trevor are weighing their options for rebuilding. But Rainey wants to give this message loud and clear to anyone who is missing an animal in the aftermath of a fire. Do not give up hope. The Union newspaper in Grass Valley reports today that a social media trend that seems to encourage students to destroy school bathrooms and engage in other vandalism has arrived in Nevada County. The trend on the social media platform TikTok, which has been recognized as sweeping the nation in recent weeks, has caused enough damage at Nevada Union High School that Principal Kelly Roden sent out an email earlier this week pleading with students and parents to help put a stop to the trend. In the email, Roden said, The issues we face every day in our restrooms are becoming an epidemic after the recent TikTok challenge to destroy school bathrooms were seen on our campus. We are asking parents to have conversations with their students about the issues around negative social media. On Wednesday, Nevada Joint Union High School District Superintendent Brett McFadden said Nevada Union has had to temporarily close numerous bathrooms due to students damaging or destroying faucets, soap dispensers, mirrors, and toilets. McFadden asked parents to help, but he also lambasted TikTok for failing to take any significant action to put a stop to the trend. Bear River High School principal Chris Roberts told the Union newspaper that Bear River's bathrooms have also been the scene of vandalism in recent weeks, adding that the damage has taken a tremendous toll on the school's custodial and maintenance staff. 
In the weather for our region, tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with a low of 71. On Friday, sunny with a high of 91 and a low of 68. Air quality in Nevada City late this afternoon was moderate with an air quality index of 57. Friday's air quality is forecast to be good with a potential AQI of 49. In Truckee tonight, some clouds with a low of 36. Friday in Truckee, mainly sunny with a high of 81 and a low of 38. The air quality late today in Truckee was good with an air quality index of 30. Friday's air quality is forecast to be moderate with a potential AQI of 63. In Sacramento, mainly clear tonight with a low of 59. Friday in Sacramento, sunny with a high of 95 and a low of 57. Sacramento's air quality late today was good with an AQI of 48. Friday's air quality is forecast to be good with a potential AQI of 31. In this week's Brave Hearts, we hear from two people who've built a very special partnership. Grass Valley Police Officer Jonathan Brown and social worker Kelly Gallagher describe how they travel the county together, working to gradually build relationships with members of the homeless community and help them engage in services. Welcome to this edition of Brave Hearts where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Bravehearts. This is part two of the Bravehearts episode with the Grass Valley Police Department and Kelly and Jonathan, the officer and social worker who go on calls together. So you ride around together mm-hmm. for five days a week or? Yeah, four you know, days a week. Okay, usually. four mm-hmm. days a week. And so tell us how this program works. So generally we go out and we contact people that we either A, know are homeless just based on our prior contact with them or um, if they're staying at the shelter or something like that or people that get called to our attention who are on the verge of becoming unhoused. And we try to sometimes connect them with services before they they lose their living situation, the current living situation, and try to stop them from getting to the street in the first place. And those are all things that Kelly is very helpful with because she understands, she has a social services background, so she understands who to talk to, what programs are available, and who we can connect those people with to try to get them the right help that they need. Because 911 always isn't the the right answer for everything, unfortunately. And so she helps a lot with connecting those people with, I mean, connecting the dots, really. We already have programs in place for rapid rehousing. There's already programs in the community for financing people temporarily in motel rooms. There's already programs that are out there to get people into treatment. There's already programs for all these things. But sometimes it's just connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. People fall through the cracks. They may have case workers or at one time gone to a mm-hmm. case manager for either homeless issues such as like finding housing or jobs or a phone or clean clothes or somewhere to shower. Um, or it may be a mental health thing where they're trying to get somebody 
to deal with trauma or deal with medication and prescriptions and doctor's appointments, all of those things. Because a lot of times of their disabilities or mental health issues or just because of the difficulty of living on the street, they don't get to connect with their caseworker a lot of times and then over time may fall through the cracks. So we'll find them on the street and find out if they're working with anybody or if they did in the past or what they need and try to connect them to those services that are already available and get them back on the right path. Mm. Beautiful goal. So Kelly, tell me a little bit about how it's unfolded and what happens when you go talk to these folks that you've either heard from another source or you find on the streets yourself that are homeless and you're trying to connect them. Can you give us a little scenario of how that goes? So in a given day, we might get a call um, that someone's sleeping, say, at Wolf Creek Trail by the Mining Museum. That's, that's kind of a hot spot for us lately. Mm-hmm. So we'll go down and, and see who the person is, see if we already know them, which we usually already do at this point. And from there, we'll figure out, okay, what's going on with this person right now? Are they, do they need medical care? Mm-hmm. Do they need their case manager? Do they need, who do they need? Who are they connected with already? A lot of times our work looks like a lot of phone calls. Ah. <laughs> like just kind of like, okay, pushing somebody to get somebody into treatment or pushing somebody to get somebody in the CSU. Or, so we do a lot of advocating, probably half our job. <laughs> Besides engaging folks, and it's it's basically rooted in the idea of progressive engagement. So we're over time, we're slowly building a relationship with people who often have been underserved, marginalized, and are vulnerable. They don't just look at us and go, "Okay, hey, yeah, sure, I'll tell you my life story," right? And so, and it's interesting for me as a social worker being with a police officer, because you know a lot of the people that I've served traditionally don't care for law enforcement, don't have had negative, unwanted contact with police. And so I'm used to that angle of people being resistant. It's definitely a different avenue when you're out out there with a police officer. Now, John isn't just any police officer. He's got a little bit of social worker in him, I think. Uh-huh. Um, just, just a little <laughs> enough. <laughs> but I think one of the things that really works for us is that we have a mutual respect and admiration for each other's work. I think John is, even he'll laugh at me, but I think he's a hero. I think mm-hmm. he's done some amazing things as a police officer, and I really respect that. I respect how he goes about his day, like how he approaches people. So I think that's part of what makes this really special, because you don't always find a partner that you can connect with. I mean, we're totally different ages, we're from totally different places, we have totally different backgrounds but we both really care deeply about helping people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at the end of the day, we, we really have the same goal. Mm-hmm. So where someone might be resistant to law enforcement, they might be willing to give me a little more of a chance because I'm not in a uniform. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. Whenever her adult children got restive or seemed to be at loose ends, not sure what to do next with their lives, 
my mother could be relied on to suggest we should join the Peace Corps. This was at first irritating, and then boring, and then hilarious, in the way that family stories or habits turn out to be riotously funny because they're so predictable. None of my siblings nor I had any interest in the Peace Corps. It did not cross our minds. Travel, sure. Helping other people, fine. We were usually wrestling with what kind of jobs we wanted to do or where we should live, sometimes trying to work around a partner's life goals, too. Joining the Peace Corps was too extreme a solution. Go ahead and blow up your life, it seemed to say, and then see what happens. I've met quite a few people, all of them about 10 years older than I, who did join the Peace Corps and found it incredibly valuable. A friend's mother did after she'd retired from being a high school French teacher in Maine and had a wonderful time somewhere in Africa that I've forgotten, where both her French and her teaching came in handy. My mom was the person who should have joined the Peace Corps, just as she should have become a doctor instead of, or in addition to, having four children and making smocked dresses and little shirts that matched her own. She ended up becoming a counselor in a learning disabilities clinic, and then in her 50s went to nursing school. Although she liked this work, her hearing was getting bad by then, and rolling the bodies of head-injured Hell's Angels over in bed kind of wrecked her back. By the time I'd gotten smart enough to say she was the one who should join the Peace Corps, she wasn't healthy enough, in her view. The moment had passed. I haven't had children, as you may recall, so I'm not able to give anyone advice about raising them. I've watched the world go by for six decades, though, and have observed a lot of humans. The happiest ones I've seen are those who figured out what they wanted to do and then did it. Yes, I'm white and middle class and had a privileged vantage point, as well as a blinkered view of mostly people like myself. And yes, the men had a much easier time of this than the women. But given those contexts, it was still pretty clear that if someone had a wish or drive or propensity for something and followed it, they carried an aura of contentment other people did not. Sometimes these trajectories don't last. I was a sweater designer for 10 years and really loved it. In year 11, though, I got bored. I feel incredibly lucky to have found a second creative life as a writer, something I backed into rather than pursuing, and after 30 years I'm not bored with yet. There is luck and privilege all over the place in these matters, but there's also an important core question. What do you want? It's not easy to answer, and it changes, but keep your eye on it. Who knows? Maybe you'll be the one who ends up joining the Peace Corps. Check it out at www.peacecorps.gov. Tony Fisk would be so proud. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, it's the Climate Report. Host Martin Webb takes the temperature of global efforts to address environmental crisis and asks, 
Can we splurge our way to a solution? And at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! KVMR gets support from Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street. Open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. And California Solar, local B Corporation, employee-owned solar co-op in Grass Valley, working to balance profit and purpose. Specializing in residential and commercial solar systems, including battery backup systems. California Solar, cal-solar.coop. The KVMR Evening News airs every weekday at 6 p.m. If you missed any stories or want to hear them again, visit kvmr.org or listen to the KVMR News wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great evening.